Welcome to NoSpinHomilies.com. I invite you to join me to reflect upon the homilies of Father Dan. Father Dan will challenge us to open our heart, mind, and soul to the Word of God. Father Dan will draw upon sacred scripture along with art, literature, and the lives of the saints to help us grow in our love and knowledge of the scripture. In doing so, we can become the living Word of God in this world. Now it is my pleasure to present to you No Spin Homilies. Today in the Gospel, the Apostles learn not only the identity of Jesus, but also his mission, as well as our mission, the mission of our universal church. Now notice how the Gospel passage begins. It says, Once when Jesus was praying in solitude and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, it's a basic biblical truth. Prayer is indispensable. It's an indispensable component in the spiritual life. Jesus, his daily life always began with prayer. You see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus would begin the day first getting up very early in the morning, going to a deserted place, and praying to the Father by himself. Then, after he was finished with that, he would go about his day. And so, if prayer was important for Jesus to do, especially at the very beginning of the day, well, it should be for us. As I've said many times, we should be people of prayer. You know, a good exercise for us, you know, at the very beginning of the day, stop and pray. You know, or maybe when we're commuting to work in the car or all alone, just turn the radio off, turn the phone off, and just pray. Pray to God you know, that His grace and that we will be able to cooperate with that grace throughout the day. It's interesting. From time to time, people will come up to me after Mass and they'll say, you know, Father, I just feel lost. I feel like a spiritual malaise has overcome me. The first thing I'll ask them, do you pray every day? Most of the time they'll say no. And I say, you know, you've got to do that. It's communication with the divine. There's no way that we can say we have a right relationship with God if we're not praying every day. You know, I think I've given you the analogy of a married couple. There's no way a married couple can say, we've got a great marriage, but I only speak to my spouse a few times a month. Well, they're kidding themselves. That marriage is doomed for failure. Husbands and wives have to communicate you know, every day, several times a day, sharing their thoughts and their feelings in order for that relationship to continue to exist and grow. Well, so too with us. We have to pray every day, maybe several times a day, in order for our relationship, our faith with God to grow. And so we have to be people of prayer. The other thing that's important about prayer in the sacred scriptures is when Jesus prays, it always indicates something very important is about to occur. I'll give you some examples. Jesus prays at the time of the Last Supper, and in doing so, institutes what we refer to as our Mass. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his impending passion and death. Jesus prays on the cross, right before he dies. He prays Psalm 22. Well, here, here Jesus in the Gospel, he prays. And he prays right before he's about to reveal his identity. And so, prayer, again, is something that is very important. Prayer is somehow keenly linked to Jesus and the important things that he does. So, it should also do for us. Now, notice the question that Jesus asks the apostles. Who do the crowds say that I am? It's an interesting question. 
He doesn't ask, you know, what do the people think of my teachings? Or what do the people think of my way of life or my miracles? No, he asks specifically about his identity. You know, it's kind of like a popular opinion poll. You know, based upon everything that the people have seen and heard, everything that Jesus has done and taught, you know, have the people informed an opinion of him? Well, as we can see, there's a wide variety of opinions. You know, it says John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the ancient prophets. Well, there is a wide variety. Now, the important thing that links them all, they're all dead wrong. Next, Jesus directs the question to the apostles, but who do you say that I am? Now, it's only natural. You know, the crowds have not been with Jesus day in and day out for years. You know, they haven't walked with him, talked with him, ate with him, but the apostles have. Now, you would think if there's anyone, anyone that really would know Jesus' identity or have a good guess, it would be the apostles. You know, they've traveled with him. They've observed all of his miracles. They've listened to all of his teaching day in and day out. They should have a pretty good opinion of who he truly is. And notice there's dead silence. So we can only assume the apostles, too, are confused. You know, they really don't know. They're not really sure. But Peter does. Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And so Peter gets it. So then it begs the question, why does Peter get it? Is he the holiest of all the apostles? Well, hardly. You know, Peter throughout the Gospels is constantly vacillating in his faith. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. So if there's anyone that's the holiest amongst all the apostles, it would probably be John. John is the one that is referred to as the apostle that Jesus loved. John is the only apostle that followed Jesus all the way to the cross. And so, how does Peter get it? Is he the smartest of all the apostles? Hardly. He's a simple fisherman. Peter is able to get it. Peter understands Jesus' identity. Not because he's the smartest or the holiest, because he was divinely inspired by God, God the Father. I think that's a great lesson for us all. Peter didn't come to the understanding of Jesus' correct identity all by himself, on his own, based upon his own intelligence, his own intellect, his own will or holiness. He came to know the correct identity of Jesus based upon the inspiration of the Father, upon the inspired confession that our church is built upon. See, our church is not based upon popular opinion polls. And now, in our day and age, In our present time, many people are saying within our church, Catholics, the church is outdated. It needs to keep up with the times. You know, we need to use popular opinion polls, you know, to gauge Catholicism and what we believe and what we shouldn't believe. More to it, people argue that our church should be governed by a majority vote, by the popular opinion of others in our Catholic church. Well, if we follow popular opinion polls to determine our faith and the teachings of our faith, we'd be completely wrong. Wrong in the knowledge of our faith and wrong in the knowledge of God. We'd be just like those people in the gospel. You know, they thought Jesus was John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the ancient prophets. They were completely wrong. See, if our faith is based upon popular opinion polls, then what we believe in is going to be dead wrong also. We believe as a Catholic church that Peter, as well as his successors, the popes, that our church is governed due to the special charism of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
A popular criticism that maybe you have heard recently is that if we believe our church is governed by Peter and his successors, the popes, then it shuts down intellectual freedom. Well, I would argue not at all. In fact, I would argue the rules and the structure and the authority of our faith makes us even more vibrant and free in intellectual thought. I'll give you a great analogy to this. You know, gather a bunch of kids and you give them, say, a football. And you say, you know, go out into that field and start playing football. Well, if the kids don't know the rules of the game of football, you know, there's just going to be chaos. The kids are not going to be able to play very well. And they're not going to have fun. But if the kids know the rules of football, the rules that govern football, you know that a touchdown is six points, an extra point is one point, you have to go 10 yards in order to get a first down. See, then the kids get lost in the game. Then they begin to have a lot of fun because they follow those rules. Well, the same thing holds true with us. You know, we follow the rules and the authority of our church. And in doing so, it encourages, you know, intellectual free thought. It doesn't discourage it, not at all. So that what? Now we come to know our faith and we draw closer to Christ in a greater and greater way. Now, getting back to the gospel, we heard Jesus' identity. We now know who he really is. Now Jesus tells us his mission. He says, The Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now that's interesting. We all know that the Israelites long for a Messiah, but their version of a Messiah in their minds was a political or military Messiah, like King David. But Jesus is telling the apostles he truly is the Messiah. He will save them, but he'll save it by his death and resurrection. That's how he'll come to save the world. Now, what does Jesus say next? Now that he's revealed his identity and his mission, now he tells us, the church, our mission. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Well, now he tells the apostles, which represent the church, what our mission is. Essentially, Christian discipleship involves self-denial, self-sacrifice. If we truly are to call ourselves authentic followers of Christ, we have to practice self-sacrificing love. You know, a love that the world saw when Jesus mounted the cross. You know, in that self-sacrificing act of mounting the cross, Jesus taught us what love truly is. Well, we've got to practice that ourselves. We have to put the needs of others before our own. Over the past several weeks, I've had many weddings. And this is the one thing that I've emphasized when I've preached my homilies in the wedding services or masses. I always told the couple, essentially what we have to do is practice self-sacrificing love. Put the other before yourself. Not out of duty or obligation, but instead of the love that you have for that person. In doing so, both the bride and the groom will rejoice in their great love during the happy times of their marriage, and they'll fall back on that love for support during the challenging times of their married life. And so we have to continue to do that ourselves, put the needs of others before ourselves. In doing so, then we will always know who Jesus is, we will always see his presence in our life, and we will always be able to call ourselves authentic disciples of Jesus Christ. And may the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ rest upon you always.